Exodus 18, verses 5 through 24. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, together with Moses' son and wife, came to him in the desert, where he was camped near the mountain of God. Jethro had sent word to him, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and your two sons. So Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. They greeted each other and then went into the tent. Moses told his father-in-law about everything the Lord had done to Pharaoh and the Egyptians for Israel's sake and about all the hardships they had met along the way and how the Lord had saved them. Jethro was delighted to hear about all the good things the Lord had done for Israel in rescuing them from the hand of the Egyptians. He said, praise be to the Lord who rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians and of Pharaoh and who rescued the people from the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all other gods, for he did this to those who had treated Israel arrogantly. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and other sacrifices to God, and Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law in the presence of God. The next day, Moses took his seat to serve as judge for the people, and they stood round him from morning till evening. When his father-in-law saw all that Moses was doing for the people, he said, what is this you are doing for the people? Why do you alone sit as judge while all these people stand round you from morning till evening? Moses answered him, Because the people come to seek God's will. Whenever they have a dispute, it is brought to me, and I decide between the parties and inform them of God's decrees and laws. Moses' father-in-law replied, What you are doing is not good. You and these people who come to you will only wear yourselves out. The work is too heavy for you. You cannot handle it alone. Listen now to me, and I will give you some advice, and may God be with you. You must be the people's representative before God and bring their disputes to him. Teach them the decrees and laws and show them the way to live and the duties they are to perform. But select capable men from all the people, men who fear God, trustworthy men who hate dishonest gain, and appoint them as officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. Have them serve as judges for the people at all times, but have them bring every difficult case to you, the simple cases they can decide themselves. That will make your load lighter, because they will share it with you. If you do this, and God so commands, you will be able to stand the strain, and all these people will go home satisfied. Moses listened to his father-in-law and did everything he said. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I do thank you, God, that you've brought us here this evening. I pray that you'd be honored. Lord, I pray that you'd bless uh, everyone in Sago, their parents, and everyone associated with this congregation of faith. In the name of Jesus, amen. I don't really think that my dad saw it coming. Um, your kids are supposed to be like you. They're supposed to think like you. They are supposed to, uh, to do what you want them to do and to basically have your worldview. That's what the manual says. Uh, the manual that they give you when you leave the hospital and you have all these questions and you can flip through it and, and find easy answers. And sometimes, if you read the fine print, and I don't think my dad did, in the back, sometimes that's not the case. Sometimes uh, kids are interested in other things. Uh, and this difference between my dad and I uh, came out most often during car trips uh, because he would be interested in the sort of trivia like states and capitals, presidents, assassinated presidents, top 10 strikeout leaders, home run king. Uh, and while I was interested in all of those things, uh, I, had a, I had a different interest, especially for car trips. 
And that was the would you rather question. Would you rather have wings or be able to breathe underwater? And it seems like an easy choice, right? Wings, who doesn't want to fly? And yet then you think about it, excuse me, and I'm from Texas. And uh, if you're flying during hunting season in Texas, you're gonna get shot as an oversized turkey. <laughs> At the end of the day, I'd much rather never fear of drowning. This continued as I got older and the would you rather questions got more and more sophisticated. So it became, uh, with a vivid imagination, questions of would you rather have the ring of power from Lord of the Rings? Or would you rather have Thor's hammer? Uh, and of all the objects that I could pit against one another, uh, there was one object that I loved more than any other, and that was the lightsaber. And for any of any Star Wars fans out there, the lightsaber uh, is an amazing object. For non-fans, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, Clark, that's ridiculous. It's a glowing sword. <laughs> and to you, I say nay. It is, it is far more than a glowing sword. Glowing swords can't uh, dispatch enemies. Uh, have infection-free amputations because there's no infection when the wound instantly cauterizes. Uh, and I know that some of you will find yourself in this position later in your life. Uh, young men, you may have asked a young lady over for dinner. You think, right, I've got, if you're of age, a nice bottle of wine, I've made a, a great meal. And you'll think, oh man, I forgot dessert. Well, this is where a lightsaber comes in handy. Take a pear, cut it in half, caramelize pears. It works like a charm. Now, as much as I love Star Wars, and I do love Star Wars, I've never been particularly uh, entranced by, the, by the, the philosophical undercurrents. But there is one thing that I do think, other than lightsabers, that Star Wars uh, can show us. And it's a cultural example of apprenticeship. This idea that, that even um, as much as we might like to think that we can do it by ourselves, that in reality, in the same way that Jedi Knights don't just spring up from the ground, Christians don't either. And that to become a disciple, uh, we require help from other people and wisdom and insight. So now, I suggest that we turn to Exodus 18. And in Exodus 18, we have a, a kind of a strange story. Because in this story, uh, there's nothing crazy or fantastical or miraculous. In Exodus 17, the chapter before, you have two stories. You have the Israelites grumbling against God and Moses responding and saying, well, look, I'll just tap this rock and out will come flowing water, miracle number one. Then you have him fighting Amalek. And when he's fighting Amalek, it's the story where if he holds his arms up, then they win the battle, the Israelites win the battle. And if he, if he lets them drop, then they start to lose. And so he has to enlist his friends Aaron, or his brother Aaron, and his friend Hur, it's a great name, by the way, Hur, uh, to hold his arms up so they, they can actually win the battle. And then in Exodus 19, you have uh, the, his encounter with God on Sinai. In Exodus 20, the giving of the Ten Commandments. And situated in between these two uh, pretty fantastical ideas, you have Exodus 18, which is a very earthy and homegrown story. And it's a story of uh, a reunification and the interesting relationship between a father-in-law and his son-in-law which is always exciting. We see that this is a story of a reunification among, of two people who have a long history together. According to scripture, uh, Moses spent 40 years in Egypt being raised as an Egyptian, knowing he was Hebrew, but as 
uh, in, in Pharaoh's court. He killed an Egyptian and then was sent into exile. He spent then 40 years in Midian tending sheep, where he became Jethro's son-in-law. And then spent 40 years, and at the end of that, at the end of that 40 years, is when he meets the I am that I am, a God of his fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he says, go and tell Pharaoh to let my people go. So he goes, turns the Nile into blood, causes locusts to fall down, frogs to overpopulate Egypt. Uh, The Passover occurs, and then they come back out. And so then he spends the next 40 years, uh, the last 40 years of his life in the wilderness, waiting to see the Israelites enter into the promised land. But so, to put it in perspective, 80 of those 120 years that Scripture says that Moses lived were spent uh, around, or 40 we know of, 80 in, in likelihood, I mean, uh, are around Jethro. So this is not, a, this is not a, uh, a rarity that they would spend time together. And in Exodus 18, we see them coming back, and we see Jethro coming out and saying to Moses, saying to Moses to come in and tell him what God has done, and they do. We see in verses 8 and 9, Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had befallen them on the journey, and how the Lord had delivered them. Jethro rejoiced over all the goodness which the Lord had done to Israel in delivering them from the hand of the Egyptians. So Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of Pharaoh and who delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. And I want to put something forward to you today. When I think of this image, and I'm, I'm reading something into the text here, but I get the image of two kids. Two, well, I think of my little son, and I think of him capturing a cricket. I think of him capturing a frog and holding it in his hands and excitedly coming up and saying, and he can't say this yet because he's not old enough, but I'm projecting into the future, Hey, Dad, look what I've got. And in the same way, Moses coming to Jethro and saying, look at what the Lord has done. Look at the amazing thing that the Lord has done. And having a glint and a glimmer in his eye that someone that we think of as as 80 uh, may not have all the time. No offense intended to any octogenarians in the audience today. But I have this image of a glimmer, a glimmer of excitement. And I love this image of testimony. But yet in order for this encounter of joy to take place, two things have to happen. First, Moses has to be willing to testify to what God has done. He has to know what God has done within him and testify to it. And second, Jethro has to listen. Jethro has to be in a place where he is willing to acknowledge the testimony that Moses offers. And as easy as it sounds, I don't think it happens nearly as often as we think it might. If we move to the second part of the chapter, we see that there is more in the story. And we see in 18, 13 through 19 and 24, the next day Moses took his seat to serve as judge for the people, and they stood round him from morning till evening. When his father-in-law saw all that Moses was doing for the people, he said, what is this that you're doing for the people? Why do you alone sit as judge while all these people stand round you from morning till evening? Moses answered him, because the people come to seek God's will. Whenever they have a dispute, it is brought to me, and I decide between the parties and inform them of God's decrees and laws. Moses' father-in-law replied, what you are doing is not good. You and these people who come to you will only wear yourselves out. The work is too heavy for you. You cannot handle it alone. 
Listen now to me and I will give you some advice and may God be with you. Moses listened to his father-in-law and did everything that he said. My wife is not here this evening. I would say this with her here, uh, and especially this part. I love my father-in-law. We get along. We see things similarly. Uh, he is a wonderful, wonderful man. And I love him partially because he raised the, the daughter that I've married and, and, and love. And yet at the same time, for those who are not married, in-laws are a funny, uh, they're a funny breed. Um, <laughs> In the same way that we look at siblings and parents and we love them and we care for them and in many ways they are the closest ones to us. Uh, sometimes they're on a bit of a short leash and it's easier for in-laws to perhaps overstep uh, than it is for, for random strangers. And so I think of Moses and I think of my, my father-in-law strolling up and kind of chomping an apple and looking out and saying, Clark, what you're doing? That sermon, weak introduction. You know, and I think, and I think, right, how would I take that? Would I be pretty excited about that? And quite frankly, I don't think I would be. In that case, it would be, it'd be a short leash. And we all know the sting of what happens when people critique us, when they say that anything that we are in charge of is not good enough or even could be done better, even if they're right. To his everlasting credit, Moses did not respond in this way. And rather than justifying himself to Jethro and saying, hey, Jethro, you weren't there. God didn't use you to get people out of Egypt, which is what I would probably say, uh, and be completely wrong. Uh, you know, you should leave me alone, let me do it my own way. Instead of saying that, Moses was humble enough, and they had a shared history that allowed him to take that and humbly accept it. And not only that, uh, but do it with an apparent humility. And so I want to ask one question to you right now. At this point, I want to ask, do you think that this second episode, this episode of accepting counsel, could have happened without the first episode? Would Moses have listened if Jethro hadn't listened to him the day before? If they hadn't had this shared experience of, hey, look what God's done. And Moses knows beyond a shadow of a doubt that he and Jethro now share a vision, a vision of the goal. And that is obedience and faithfulness to God. As they've shared, as they've shared among each other, it is this, it is this link, that, link that allows them to then move on to the practical, practical element, knowing that they are going in the same direction. And I love the Bible because, and particularly the Old Testament, I have a special place in my heart for the Old Testament, because we always see in the Bible, and especially in the Old Testament, flawed people. We see earthy people. We don't see people that have it together, uh, that are often much less spiritual than I think I should be. We see very non-spiritual people, and I see David, and not victorious David, or, or David who's happy to dance naked in streets, but David who sends people into battle so that they die, and then rationalizes it with, well, maybe I didn't kill him. I didn't literally kill him. And I think of Solomon and his wisdom and arrogance. And I love the Old Testament because God uses these sorts of people. And here we see Moses doing it wrong. We see the hero. I mean, again, this, this entire book arguably is about him. He is the protagonist and he is the hero. And yet in this, in this little place in between uh, these miraculous stories, we see him doing it poorly. And yet we also see in Jethro someone 
who is willing to not control every situation, who is content to listen, to behold, and to understand and, and, and rejoice with what God is doing in others. So this twofold movement of testimony and wise counsel requires certain sorts of people. Specifically, it takes people and communities of faith first who are actively looking for what God is doing, who are paying attention to the world around them, to the people around them, trying to see ways in which God is working and then encourage those people as they see God working in them. It requires people who are eager for God's kingdom to come and are looking for any sign that that's happening. And when I ask myself this question, am I the type of person that is eager for these things? I think no. I'd much prefer to shut myself off and worry about my own spiritual struggles and my own spiritual triumphs. And so for that reason, I, and I probably, and I imagine I'm not entirely alone in this, need eyes to see and ears to hear what God is doing around me. And in addition to people that desire to see and to hear, the process of testimony and joy requires people uh, that are willing to listen, that are willing to listen, excuse me, to testify. And that requires that we ask Christ to be present within us, to change us, to make us into people that have something to testify to. Do we ask Christ to be present with us on a daily basis? Do we ask, that, do we ask for the transforming and life-altering power of the Spirit to, be, to glow within us? And these questions may seem obvious, but as I was, as I was writing the sermon and as I was thinking about it, the stark reality came to me that I don't really want to be Moses. Well, I want to be Moses in the middle. I want to, I want to be a shepherd, and I kind of want to be left alone and tend sheep and have, the, have things been, be pretty safe as long as I'm not attacked by predators. I don't want to be Moses, who is addressed out of a burning bush, to be thought of as possibly crazy, to go into Egypt and face the most powerful monarch in the ancient world, and face then a people that really are kind of angry that I, that I even listened to God in the way that I did. Finally, are we a people of humility? Can we hear the counsel of others and receive it humbly, even from parents and children? So adults, parents, there will come a day when your children may say things that are profoundly discerning and wise. Maybe they already do or have. And when that day comes, are you willing to listen? Are you willing to accept that maybe this child that you brought into, into the world uh, may have a special spiritual insight? And young people, are you willing to concede that perhaps your parents have far more wisdom than you might have surmised? It's easy, and our culture says that, uh, that listening to your parents is pretty dumb. It's pretty boring. And yet the reality is that um, your parents know you probably far better than you know yourself. And many to, in, many, in many ways, love you more than you love yourself. Are you humble enough to listen to their wise counsel? As I continue to get older, I'm frequently confronted with the vastly superior wisdom of my own father. And only now do I look back with a bit, of, a bit of shame at the ways in which I neglected his counsel over the years. Tony Evans is a famous, well, 
a relatively famous pastor in Dallas, where I'm from. And he tells a story that when he was growing up, his father was a dock worker and left the house around five every morning. But on the outside chance that, that Tony would be up that early, if he was sick or just wanted a glass of water, he always knew that his dad would be in the living room praying for his kids and praying for his family. So as a community, do we beat our collective breasts as Tony's father did for young people in this congregation? Young people, do you beat your breast for your parents? Do you pray for your parents? Do you pray for your leaders? The kingdom that is coming is no respecter, well, it does not seem that the kingdom is, that is coming is much of a respecter of age and to some extent, even the familial relations, Jesus has some very interesting things to say about the kingdom and the relations that we operate under now. And yet it is clear that a shared vision can do wonders. Do we live in that reality now? Are we willing to, to love each other and to testify to one another and to listen to one another? Even when, when we, our culture says otherwise, we have every, well, our culture says we have every right not to. Jeremiah 31, verse 10, 10 through 14 says, Hear the word of the Lord, O nations, and declare it in the coastlands afar off, and say, He who scattered Israel will gather him and keep him as a shepherd keeps his flock. For the Lord has ransomed Jacob and redeemed him from the land of him who is stronger than he. They will come and shout for joy on the height of Zion, and they will be radiant over the bounty of the Lord over the grain and the new wine and the oil, and over the young and the flock and the herd. And their life will be like a watered garden and they will never languish again. Then the maiden will rejoice in the dance and the young men and the old together. For I will turn their mourning into joy and will comfort them and give them joy for their sorrow. I will fill the soul of the priests with abundance and my people will be satisfied with my goodness, declares the Lord. Then the maiden will rejoice in the dance, and the young men and the old together, for I will turn their mourning into joy, and will comfort them and give them joy for their sorrow. I will fill the soul of the priests with abundance, and my people will be satisfied with my goodness, declares the Lord. Amen.